everyone. Welcome to Just Admit It, where former deans and directors of missions give expert insight into the complex higher ed landscape. I'm Christine, an Ivy Wise College admissions counselor and former assistant director of admissions at Yale and Georgetown. And joining me today is my friend and fellow Ivy Wise colleague, uh, Scott, who is also who was also an assistant director of admissions at Yale. I'm so excited to announce that we also have two very special guests joining us today. First up is Martin Campion, former head of careers in higher education at South Island School in Hong Kong and founder of Campion College Consultancy. We also have Jenny McGowan, who is the director of Keystone Tutors Hong Kong office. In this episode, we are going to discuss the similarities and differences between the U.S. and U.K. university admission processes. So just to kick us off, I will um, speak to what I know um, more about the U.K. versus the U.S. admissions process and speak um about the U.S. process, um, some of the main points, and I'll turn it over to uh, Martin and um, to speak more about the U.K. process. So to just capture the U.K., uh, the U.S. process, um, the first thing that I think I always mention um, is that it's a holistic process. Um, it That means that everything matters um, whenever, you know, when you think about the admissions process, what's included. Of course, we have the hard and quantitative factors like grades, uh, test scores. These are all very important components. In fact, I would say that these are the most um, important components. Uh, that's what it, admissions officers will turn to first when they're looking at an application is they go to the transcript. Um, they want to assess if the student is academically ready for um for college, for their particular college, in fact. And there's a, a two questions I've heard admissions officers often use to sum up this kind of evaluation process. And the first question they ask of an applicant is, can the student do the work? And that's why they're looking at the transcript. And that's why they're also looking at test scores first. And will the student do the work? And I think the transcript, um, which captured students' academic record for the last at least three years when they're applying, um, will also tell admissions officers about how well the student um, is working um, as well throughout high school. So will they do the work? Can they do the work? Of course, in the holistic process, it's so much more than the quantitative. We often tell students um, these factors are necessary, but insufficient. And that means is that if you're deemed academically competitive because you have strong grades and you have strong test scores, everything else about you matters as well. Because the third question that admissions officers like to ask when they're looking at an application is, what else will the student bring to our campus? We know that the student is fabulous as an academic student, but we hope that student is not just going to sit in their dorm room and study all the time, and that's it. They also want student to come to their campus and participate um, in a very um, enriching way uh, that the student's um, diverse background would bring something unique and interesting to the overall community. And that's why they want to see what else the student has done in high school um, outside of the classroom. And for those components, they're looking at the student's activities. Um, in the U.S., we like to call them extracurricular activities, but I would say there's so much more than just clubs, school clubs. So beyond just joining the debate team or uh, a sport um, playing basketball. They're looking um, for students who are engaged in their local community as well. Um, and, and just beyond just kind of your um, very cursory uh, volunteering at a specific place, but just how they are engaged um, in their school community and their local community and the broader global community um, as well. So they're looking for these factors. Um, they're also looking uh, to see what the teachers um, have to say about the student. So um, typically you would have at least one, if not two recommendations 
information included in the application process as well, as they're very curious uh, to see how students comment, um, teachers comment about the student. And of course, there's the uh, recommendation letter from the counselor as well, um, who can speak to the student more than just in the classroom context, but in the overall school context. Um, how does a student fare compared to uh, fellow classmates or even classmates or students from the past? Um, so those are all really important components. And then the application itself, of course, include uh, parts for students to write about their the, their interests in themselves, uh, their essays involved. And uh, those are, are also <laughs> um, a huge component. And I often get questions from students that that's the most nerve wracking part for them is coming up with a topic and knowing what to write and how to write. So um but that is something that uh, admissions officers are curious to, to read because they really do want to hear from the student how they think, what they value, what they believe, what's important to them. Um, all those really uh, nice and qualitative components that they can't just get from looking at a transcript or looking at an activity list. So all those components matter. That's why it's a holistic process. And uh, there is no formula to this. It's not, you know, input, output, uh, you get a decision. It's very much uh, a full consideration. Um, there are often multiple readers looking at an application. Um, some admission offices will have admissions committees where it's a discussion and the committee makes these decisions. So it's not a precise science. It's not a formula. Again, um, it is very holistic. Um, and that's why sometimes you see outcomes and you're wondering, well, how, how did that come about? Um, how can a student with this exact same profile be admitted here and not accepted there? Um, and that's because the process is very human. Um, it, it does take into uh, consideration all those components. So that's a little bit of a kind of an intro to the U.S. Uh, process. Uh, Martin, would you mind sharing with us um, from your perspective some of the most important um, components for the U.K. process? Absolutely, Christine. Thanks for that. And that's, uh, you know, that's what's wonderful about the US process as well in many ways. Um, I think Jenny's going to describe the mechanics of the UCAS process um, later on. So as someone who deals almost equally with applications to the US and the UK, this leaves me to reflect upon the contrasting nature of the two processes. So the subject-specific degree, often still of three years in duration, and the ability to study law and medicine at undergraduate level uh, are well-known features of the, of the UK system. And if we ignore additional assessment tests and interviews that affect a minority of degrees for law, medicine, uh, Oxbridge, and portfolios and auditions for arts and performing arts, admission for the vast majority is based on this one form alone. So you might ask the question, what are those in UK university admissions therefore working with? What are they seeing? Well, the UCAS form essentially has four parts. If we ignore you know, personal details, address, etc. I'll talk about a personal statement and the reference in a minute. The two other elements are your educational record, specifically externally assessed examinations, such as GCSEs, or for many international students, IGCSEs. There isn't a transcript, you can't attach a transcript to separate documents to a UCAS form. It won't accept an attachment. So you fill these, uh, you fill in this educational past record into the form. And then there are predicted grades 
for your final examinations, A-levels, IB, in the American context, APs. And for both of these, the admissions people are looking at grades, yes, but they're also looking at prerequisites, subjects you need to, to study that specific degree. Obvious examples are engineering, maths and physics, medicine, uh, chemistry plus, and so forth. And one, one thing I often do when I'm talking about those four elements of the UCAS form, I, I often say this, reference, opinion, personal statements, opinion, predicting grades, opinion, GCSE results, fact. And that is, that is the one fact of those four elements on the, on the UCAS form. The context in which I do that is usually to defend GCSEs, an externally assessed exam, against uh, a tendency of many schools to move to MYP or something which isn't as, as, as definite in, in many ways. But let's ignore that for the moment, okay? So in contrast to the USA, I would say personal statements – Badly named, because it's not very personal compared to a U.S. college essay that's actually intended to be so. Uh, UCAS personal statement should be 70 to 80% academic, academic. In other words, demonstrating interest in the specific degree applied to. Of course, it tells you a lot about the students, the way in which they do that and what they've achieved in their current studies, but that should be the focus and only a small element towards the end should be in terms of their extracurricular involvement. And very often that should be related to qualities that, um, that, that uh, support the degree in question. The reference, only one, is an open reference that the applicant can actually view at the point of receipt. And that's, of course, in contrast to, as you said, the up to three recommendations on something like the Common App that can, can be covered by the FERPA waiver and thereby kept confidential. There are, of course, if we're talking about the US, it's not just Common App. There are many colleges, such as the UCs, uh, that don't ask for recommendations at all. And that, you know, the whole size and variety of the US system is, is another factor here. But the open nature of the UCAS reference means that these uniformly positive references are actually of limited use in discerning between students with the same straight A's. It makes it quite difficult in, in, in that sense. Now, another fundamental difference, and this is related to subject specialization, is that UK entrance requirements are very specific in terms of grades and prerequisites, whereas the US is not. And these are spelt out usually in the conditional offers received by applicants. And of course, by and large, a US offer is essentially unconditional. There are occasions when the student drops badly in their final results. And, you know, in my career, I have had students who have been turned down at the last minute because uh, they couldn't really justify or explain that drop in performance. Now, these are more clearly defined for school curricula in things like A-level and IB. So it'll say IB, 38 points, uh, 
766 at higher level with, you know, uh, at least a six in biology and chemistry. It's very, very specific in, in that sense. In, in, in terms of the U.S. curriculum, if, if we're really, if, if we have a lot of listeners who are U.S. students, families of U.S. students who are thinking of the U.K., uh, it's often not that precise. There's usually a section on the website for international applicants. You, you go down the list to the USA, and then you find something rather more general, couched in terms of three or more APs, SAT or ACT at a certain level, and or GPA. And um, like UK applicants, US applicants to the UK will need to think years in advance about satisfying prerequisites if they're going for these specialised degrees. And as an example is the UK preference for AP Calculus BC, not AB, as an equivalent to maths A-level. So little details like that can actually matter for a US student or a student. I, I, I have many US, I have many students in, in Hong Kong who are, who are at US curriculum schools looking at the UK, for instance. And they need to be, they need to be aware of that demand for prerequisites. You need to plan ahead for your final um, two years. Interestingly, of course, recently, some, some less selective universities in the past have considered SAT subject tests as an alternative to AP results. But as we know, that avenue has recently been closed. And in a sense, that's a bit of a pity, I think, in many ways, because, I mean, you alluded to this earlier on when you were talking about the importance of grades for US admissions. If you're an admissions officer, whether you, you know, however holistic your approach, you want evidence. You know, at the end of the day, the more evidence that you can be given, uh, the better in many ways. Um, I think one difference that might not be as obvious is that while the sending of an application by the required deadline is generally the preserve and the responsibility of the student applicant in the USA, the typical UCAS applicant sends his or her application to his school not to the university, who then add the reference and take the responsibility for sending it to UCAS. So a few teachers and counsellors have woke up sweating in the middle of the night of October the 15th, wondering if they did send off those medicine and Oxbridge applications. So those are a few, a few little contrasts between, um, in general terms, between UK and US admissions. That was really interesting. Um, I feel like every time I hear about the UK process, um, there's always these, um, I mean, one, it's just a general process too, but just these nuggets. Um, there are um, nuances that could be really helpful um, in thinking about how that works. Um, Scott, would you mind um, talking more specifically about um, the Common App um, and more just kind of that Martin started talking about um, the UCAS um platform specifically too, a little bit. And Jenny will um, speak even more about that. Um, but just from your perspective, what are some types of um, application platforms and maybe focusing on the Common App and how that plays into the U.S. Uh, mission process? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Common Application is a platform largely designed to make applying to several schools possible and easier for students. Um, it came about a good, I don't know, like maybe about 25 years ago or so. Uh, and since then, you know, most U.S. universities have adopted it. It's not the only application platform. Um, there are others, but it's, you know, one of the most widely used, certainly. Um, so in terms of what all it consists of and the timelines, you know, for using it and so forth. Uh, so the application starts out with, you know, just your general demographic information, uh, some information about your parents. Um, this is where they're going to get sort of your statistics, if we can call it, uh, call it that, um, meaning your grades, your test scores, um, information about your high school. Um, perhaps any courses you've taken outside of high school, you're going to list all of those there. Uh, you will also list your extracurricular activities there. They have an activities list. Um, I, I don't want to call it your resume because it's not exactly that. Obviously, you know, there would be more components to that. But this is where you're going to tell universities how you spend your time outside of school, uh, whether you're, you know, working a job during the summer or even during term time, um, the activities you participate in um, through your school, uh, perhaps on your own time, you know, maybe you play a musical instrument, you play a sport for, for your school, that will all be listed there. There are only 10 slots, and so you want to choose, you know, if you're doing more than 10 things, you want to choose the things that you're most involved in, the things that matter the most to you, and you really should list them in that order as well, uh, you know, so that schools, so that universities can get a sense of what matters most to you. And then you'll put small descriptions. Um, you know, just a little word of advice, I would say that these descriptions should talk about your role in the activity, uh, maybe anything you've accomplished uh, in the activity, and not just kind of summarize what it is. Um, obviously, if it's something obscure or something that's a less common activity that colleges might not know about, then yeah, it's probably a good idea to, to summarize a bit, but spend most of the time, you know, talking about what you're doing. Uh, in that. Uh, for that. From there, then you'll be writing your essay, uh, your main essay that basically all of the colleges you submit the common application to will read. Um, they have several prompts, including at least this year, one that gives you an option to write about a topic of your choice. And that is, you know, your, your big intro to yourself. Uh, for colleges. And so think about it that way, you know, think about it in terms of how you want to introduce yourself to colleges and use it for that. Now, in terms of when and how you submit, um, it is an online application. So, you know, you will be submitting it to your colleges that way, uh, you know, via their online platform. And then you have a couple of uh, different options for deadlines. You know, you have your early decision, early action deadlines, which will vary slightly from, from, from some universities, though by and large, you're talking about the 1st of November. And then your regular decision deadline, which by and large is going to be round about the 1st of January. Um, so I think that more or less sums up the Common App. I suppose we'll probably chat a little bit more about, you know, how to make it a great application. Um, but that sort of sums up what it is uh, and how you'll be submitting it. Um, so now I'll just pass it off to Jenny to talk about UCAS and I guess some of the similarities and differences there. Great, yeah, thank you. It's always, yeah, as everyone keeps saying, interesting to hear about the contrasts. Um, so as Martin has already mentioned, is that UCAS is a, a centralized application system. So you, 
fill in essentially one form that is then sent to all of the UK universities that you apply to. And that that is the option. So there isn't kind of alternatives. That is the main way that students have to apply to universities in the UK. Mm-hmm. And again, as Martin said, much of it's your academic record, personal details, um, kind of basic form filling. Um, and then the personal statement is the only real part that the student kind of puts their own stamp on. And actually, it's fairly short in comparison to what US applications are looking for. Um, and I think the other important thing, actually, with with UCAS is that it's worth noting that the same information that you input there is sent to all of the universities. So it has to apply to the, the different universities that you're applying to. So course choice is fairly important in the UK because the degrees are more specific often anyway. So you're picking a subject like law or biology that you're planning to study in depth for three years. Um, but also your personal statement has to apply to all of the courses that you're applying to. So you know you couldn't apply to law and then maybe try French somewhere else because trying to write a personal statement that applies and those admissions tutors are going to be impressed by is fairly tricky. Um, so, yeah, so the personal statement is the only real bit of the UCAS form that the student kind of gets to put their personal stamp on. But it's really quite short in comparison um, in terms of then how many universities. So through UCAS, you can apply to five universities per academic year. And the only restrictions within those five are that you can only apply to either Oxford or Cambridge. And if you are applying to medicine, dentistry or veterinary science, only four out of your five choices can be those courses. Your fifth choice must be something different. Um, But otherwise, the five in theory, you can do what you know what you want. But as I said before, it's most common that a student will apply to the same course at five different universities because they receive the same information. In terms of the timeline, so the the UCAS, there's two UCAS deadlines, depending on what you're applying to. So if you are applying to Oxford or Cambridge, medicine, dentistry or veterinary science, the deadline is October 15th, the kind of academic year before you would start university. And then for all other courses, it's January 15th. Um, And once that UCAS form is submitted, the vast majority of courses and universities in the UK, that's it, really. Students are then just waiting to hear whether they get in or not. Um, However, there are some exceptions with admissions tests and interviews. Um, And I will say that the universities in the UK are very good at sharing that information about exactly what you need to do. So I think double checking always exactly what the requirements are. But I'll give a brief overview of what some of those extra requirements might be. So admissions tests is one thing you might be asked to do. So many Oxbridge courses, not all, but quite a few, have some form of admissions test. And this is normally assessing aptitude for the subject you are applying to. And it's primarily because they get so many applications from students with perfect grades that it's a way for them to differentiate between the applicants. Um, And then other courses at other universities, such as medicine, law, may also have admissions tests. Again, not at all universities, but some do. Um, And then you're also getting practical subjects, as Martin mentioned before, with kind of art, design, architecture, performing arts, where you may have to 
provide a portfolio of your work um, or kind of videos and so on if it's a, a kind of practical based subject like that. Um, so yeah, so some courses have admissions tests. And then the other option is interviews. So all Oxbridge courses interview without fail um, and they're very academic in nature so it's quite different from the interviews that you might have for US colleges the Oxbridge interviews are essentially again assessing your aptitude for that academic subject very much so um, other courses again such as medicine will also interview um, and then it's increasingly common that some very competitive courses at top universities will also interview so imperial now in interviews for quite a lot of engineering courses because they simply just get so many um, applicants but interviews are essentially at the kind of top most competitive universities but they're definitely you know not kind of for everybody um and as martin mentioned as well the you know the academic requirements are very specific so when universities are saying you must get 38 in your ib they also will list very clearly whether there's an interview whether there's an admissions test and there's a lot of information out there so there isn't really a blanket rule for for interviews and admissions tests so i would always recommend that people look at the the exact information that they're kind of looking for for the courses that they're interested in um, yeah, so that's kind of it for the mechanics, really, of the, the UK system. Um, so I think now it'd be great if people could share, I guess, the key questions that they um, should ask students if they're considering UK versus UK or US universities. I think in terms of uh, uh, reasons for a choice of UK or the USA, um, one reason you sh you shouldn't um, a reason you shouldn't use to apply to the UK is ease of application simply because it's one form and you only have to fill in one form. We all know that certainly if you're applying to uh, selective colleges in the States, this is a major undertaking in terms of supplementary essays, plus, plus, plus. And uh, you certainly shouldn't apply to the UK simply because you deem it to be an easy uh, application route. Um, that, 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 that's something I'm, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, um, a bugbear of mine that um, schools, if we talk in terms of schools, we, we'll be aware that many schools will have uh, a limit on the number of applications that a student is, is allowed to make or the school will support. And uh, I, I'm dismayed time and time again that schools say, right, it's, it's 10 or it's 12, but will count UCAS as one because it's only one form. In other words, you're giving five applications to uh, one student unfairly in relation to others. They, they often do the same with the University of California as well. And to be honest, it's atrocious because if schools can't be fair, who can be fair? And uh, it, 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 it encourages this... Uh, what I what I would term frivolous application to the UK sometimes simply on the basis that oh it's only one form I can rattle that off fairly quickly so sorry to be negative but that's one reason you shouldn't apply to the UK there are many reasons why you should of course that's interesting Martin that point because and and you're speaking from a school counselor's perspective because you're working with students and um, and parameters that schools may be able to set up and certainly an observation about the US process is the number of applications that a student it's um, I mean unless there's a school restriction um, you know you can only apply to 
10 or 12 or 15, it is um, in a sense unlimited. Um, the common app in contrast to the UCAS max out at 20, but you can actually apply to more by using the coalition application, applying to another set of schools. Then you add the UC system. That's, you know, another group. Um, in addition to um, these common platforms, not just a common app, um, there are proprietary application platforms in the US, um, Georgetown, um, MIT or two selective universities that still have their own application. So it can add up very quickly and it's enormous amount of work to write one application well. Um, and I can't imagine for these uh, 12th grade students um, writing, <laughs> you know, 20 application, um, but that's what's happening. Um, you know, not everyone, obviously, but we did see an uptick uh, in the pandemic era of more application. I think the Common App uh, mentioned that they put out some statistics that they only received a 2% increase in the number of actual users, but some um, percent, I think in the teens, double digit increase in terms of um, applications uh, applied through the Common App. So students are applying uh, more to more universities. And that is uh, the the way to drive down admit rate is when you have the denominator go up, but the numerator, the number of MITs remain the same, the MIT rate will go down. And that's the feeling that a lot of students are sensing. in the U.S., applying to U.S. universities is just so competitive. You know, why is admit rate at Harvard now like 3%? Because more students are applying 57,000 um, applications to Harvard this year, um, over 100,000 to NYU, um, UCLA, I think 100, I I don't have this specific statistic in front of me, but they saw the UC systems on a huge um, increase as well. So um, that's certainly a contributing factor um, to the actual admissions reading process, the evaluation process now in the US as well. And we all look back fondly uh, to the times when you had to uh, write off with a pen and paper Mm -hmm. to ask for an application form, which was then sent to you snail mail, and you would write your application again. You really had to think about Mm -hmm. how many you were applying to in those days. But uh, online, on the the ease of online application is one factor, of course. Another factor is this logic that the more you apply to, the more chance you have of getting into one. And of course, it's it's a vicious circle. It feeds itself, doesn't it? Yeah. I was just going to add something about the statistics, actually, Christine, that you said that I think is interesting is that and I don't know, Martin, whether you hear this, but I often hear from students picking the UK is because they look at the success rates, let's say Cambridge, and they think 20 percent. Great. That's great. 20 percent is fairly high. But because you can only apply to five, you've limited the number of applications and therefore the, the success rates aren't actually you know, representative of the fact that it's easier. Because I think when you're applying to the UK, because you've only got five, you don't take a chance on somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge because you're wasting 20% of your application. So you have to think, am I good enough for this? And schools will often say to students, actually, you, you shouldn't be applying because you're wasting one of your choices. And therefore, the people applying to Oxford and Cambridge have pre-selected themselves as a group that have a chance of getting a place. And therefore, that 20% success rate may seem high compared to kind of Harvard or so on, but arguably it's the same students getting those those offers. So I think success rates is something that you can't, you can compare maybe within countries, but you can't compare between countries because the systems are just different. 
Well, I, I think, um, I don't know whether Christine and Scott have ever, ever dreamed about a time when the U- in the USA you would have a system where you could only apply to five. Of course, it will never happen simply because of your federal system and the sheer, well, the sheer number of private institutions and the autonomy that they have. But you must have, you must have dreamed uh, at some stage of having that type of system. In, in that sense, that's, that's a great strength of, of UCAS. I mean, I know I personally would like to see students applying to fewer, um, you know, options as they used to. Um, But I don't know how one, you know, really justifies telling students to apply below a certain number when it is so competitive and playing the odds. You know, you don't want to be obviously harmful, you know, to their chances of getting in somewhere. Um, But, you know, that said, uh, I do think that a certain amount of pre-selecting of yourself uh, is a better idea than applying to 20 schools. Um, I mean, all too often, you know, you you work with students who, you know, they've heard of a school and therefore they want to apply. They haven't really thought about whether or not they are fit for it. They haven't really thought about, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, statistically they're likely to get in. And so they waste a lot of their time. You know, they'll apply to 20 schools, eight of which they have almost no shot of getting into. You know, so in my experience over time, there's something sort of, it's a magic number, you know, some between eight and 12 you know, I feel like yeah. one, you, if you've really thought about it, there probably are not more than eight to 12 institutions you really want to attend. And then two, just in terms of the number of hours in a day, I really do find, you know, once you get beyond 12, um, you're compromising quality uh, in terms of what you're able to produce. So, you know, I, I still think that that's a good number. Um which is up from, you know, probably what most students were applying to 25, 30 years ago, but I don't think it's that far up. Uh, so, yes, you do have students applying to 20 and 30, but I don't think that that's been a good idea really ever. And in, in terms of stats, I have an interesting story from my past, not, not, not too distant past. And uh, I, I was working in a school and uh, in, in, some, in, in, in an organisation called the English Schools Foundation in Hong Kong. It's, it's something of a monster. It's a very big organisation. And to cut a long story short, it would graduate from the final graduating class a thousand or two thousand students a year from its various schools. And so one of the I was chair of the Higher Education Guidance Counselors Committee. And so one of the bosses came to me one day and she said, Martin, the board are very worried. Why aren't we getting as many students into the top American schools as we're getting into the top British schools? And I looked her in the face and I said, do the math. I was using the American expression, of course, math without the S. And uh, what I I did was, and I I do this in presentations, I sat down and I worked out how many undergraduate places were actually available each year at what you could consider to be the top five U.S. colleges and the top five U.K. universities. I didn't include MIT and Imperial, which are specialist institutions, but I took the ones you'd expect, the Yales, the Cambridges, the Oxford, the Princetons, and so forth. And do you know what it came to? USA, number of places available. I can't give you the exact figure, but it was 7,000-something. UK, 24,000-something. Population of the US, 300 and God knows how many million. Population of the UK, 60 million. Do the math. And uh, people often don't, to be quite honest with you. 
people don't appreciate how how small a lot of the highly selective U.S. colleges actually are. That's a great point. I think that's uh, there's a little bit of um, a discussion um, in the U.S. about exactly the numerator or the number of bits, because it is combined by enrollment numbers. You um, just physically do not have enough beds at Harvard to house all the wonderful yeah. steam. Um, and do we expand? It's a very, um, very expensive endeavor. But that is an ongoing debate. It's just that these are wonderful schools, but just not enough slots for all the <laughs> wonderful students out there. Another thing that struck me um, that I think just about the U.S. and um, the U.K. process is that it seemed like the U.K. process, um, just overall philosophically, it's also more focused. You you kind of need to know what you want to study. And um, I'm sure that, it, you know, just because you study biology doesn't mean that you need to be a biologist, per se, after you graduate. But it, it is a career path that... Um, or at least an academic path leads to certain career path. Um, I'm sure there's great flexibility um, after graduation, even uh, UK. In the US, it, it is very open. Um, it you know we often talk about the liberal arts approach where you study everything. You study English. You know how to write. You you have to take some quantitative courses. You study math. You study um, science, and then you decide what your major will be in your third year of university. And then you have two years to kind of complete that particular major or majors. So there's just a lot of flexibility and you have students um, at the secondary or high school level coming to their final year completely undecided. And that is an option that they can include in their application. Um, I'm undecided. I don't know. I want to explore. Um, And we often encourage students to do that in the U.S. Um, So just wondering, you know, Scott, too, if you have any thoughts about kind of the very open-ended approach to very focused approach. um, And and would love to hear your thoughts, uh, Martin, Jenny, as well, about, um, you know, thinking through U.S. versus U.K., this very focused versus very open-ended, it seemed. Um, I, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but just any thoughts? The, the thing that really impressed me when I started visiting U.S. campuses, and I've been to about 150, was how each, virtually every college, and I'm sure it is every college, have writing workshops for their freshmen and even even upper years. And it, it, in in the U.K., it's assumed you're the finished product when you when you go to university and you specialize. And it, you're specializing actually before you get to university. If you just choose three A-levels, you're specializing already. And there is a tendency for UK universities even to look at IB as just the three higher levels, but that's another issue. But in many ways, it's assumed you're the finished product and you're ready to specialize, whereas IB USA is that they... They don't make that assumption. You do have your, it could be a common curriculum, you do have your general education requirements, and actually actually, that's something which is, is for me, a plus. Yeah, I think it's a funny thing outside. So, I mean, there are two things in my, that come to mind when I think, you know, sort of where are you choosing between the U.S. and the U.K.? And as you said, Christine, you know, the the UK system is more focused, but I think that that works for students coming from high school systems that are also more focused. You know, outside the US, a number of countries, you do have to choose your subjects, you know, that you're going to focus on, specialize in or take it to a higher level. And then that you move on to, you know, study further in university or at least study something related to it. And so... I don't know, you know, if you're a student coming from a U.S. high school where you haven't focused like that, 
what are the chances that you're focused and ready enough for a UK institution? I mean, obviously those students do exist. And if you know exactly what you want to do, then sort of getting on with it, you know, by going through the UK system can be exactly what you need and exactly what's a fit for you. But if you don't, then I would think that, you know, taking, you know, a more, a broader approach, you know, like most US universities do is probably going to be better for you um, because it'll give you some more time um, to figure out what you want to do. Um, I think if you're coming from a focused uh, place, you know, like if you're coming from the UK itself or, or you know, other uh, high school systems around the world, that one benefit to the US system might be now sort of taking a step back uh, and doing a bit more exploration or perhaps some cross-pollination, you know, across subjects and finding synergies that you may not have found, uh, you know, up until that point. Um, but I think largely it's, it's a matter of sort of knowing yourself, knowing what you're looking for, um, the extent to which you are decided on your career pathway and whether or not, you know, the, the, a focused approach like what you're going to get at a UK institution is, is better or not for you. Um, I'm wondering if we can also just address the financial aspect um, of um, financing the the two, you know, either you go to U.S. and uh, U.K. Um, in the U.S., um, for U.S. citizens, obviously, um, you can receive federal financial aid if you're a U.S. citizen um, and you might get some institutional aid uh, coming from the college specifically, either merit-based or need-based. And there are um, private um, scholarships. Um, for example, a corporate um, corporation could run a contest and student can apply and, and you know, and, and receive some money. For an international student, um, they would not be eligible for um, U.S. federal government um, loans. Um, so they would have have to be, um, you know, depending on the university's policy, it needs to be either full pay, um, the students would have to provide all the tuition and room and board and all that. Or if the university happens to be, um, they, they would meet the needs of the international student, um, they would, the institution itself would provide um, financial assistance to students, uh, international students coming into the U.S. and study. Um, and it could be quite expensive in the U.S., uh, you know, it, um, so we you, you can go to the university. Many universities, I should say, will offer a financial aid cal- calculator and you can input your financial family, financial background information and get a kind of a rough estimate of what you should anticipate, how much that would cost. Um, how would that process work for students, um, international students, so non-UK um, students applying to UK universities? How do they think about um, financing component? The interesting thing about the U.S. is, of course, when they when they publish their sticker price, as we call it, which which isn't necessarily the price you, price you pay at the end of the day. When they publish their sticker price, it's, it's actually the same for at least for out of state students, uh, because with public universities, of course, it could be lower for in state students. But it's essentially there's no difference between domestic and international. The difference is, as you've explained, your access to federal financial aid. For the UK, there are two separate fees. There is a home fee for students who are uh, permanent residents of the UK. A passport won't get you that home status necessarily. It's a a very complicated uh, business. If you're an international student uh, with a UK passport or a European passport, and Brexit is another thing, of course, um, uh, applying for that status. But generally speaking, you have a home fee, which is £9,250, and you have an international fee, which will depend on the type of um, course you're studying. For arts courses, it's often around 
I don't know, 12 or 15,000 for, um, for, for science and engineering courses, it's closer to 20,000. And for the clin clinical years of medicine, it can be quite punishing. It can be uh, 35,000 upwards. So, um, you know, it can, it, it can be an expensive business for international applicants. Um, generally speaking, I mean, there are special... Um, there are special uh, uh, scholarships sometimes in the UK, but generally speaking, uh, needs-based aid is relatively rare for international students. Uh, where scholarships exist, the most common one is, is what I call a token scholarship. It's a couple of thousand pounds uh, just, to, uh, just to try to uh, give you the incentive to apply to that particular, that particular institution. Uh, so that that's 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 the broad manner in which it, uh, it tends to operate it operates in the UK. Yeah, I was, I was just going to add that there are. I feel like the scholarship system in the UK is far more niche. You know, at certain universities, especially at Oxford and Cambridge, you will get certain colleges offering something really narrow. <laughs> you know, a student has to be from Hong Kong studying this one course, and then there is one scholarship available because somebody left some money for that specific purpose. So some of it does exist, but it's often very niche and very specific and definitely not as broad. Um, but I think and just talking about the, the kind of loan system. So what Martin's saying about the fees being different is that also if you're a home student, you also have access to government loans. So you essentially pay nothing up front and then you pay it off when you graduate, um, which, again, international students don't have access to that. It's a pay it up front system. Um, any final thoughts, final advice as you, you know, would want to share with them thinking about either UK or US university? Uh, you know, um, go with your guts. Uh, don't have multi-destinational issues if they're, if they're not necessary. Very often international students in particular, international schools, get FOMO, as we know it, and they see other students applying, say, to the UK, and they're, they're getting offers in November already, and, you know, that excites them, and why aren't I doing it, why aren't we doing it? And uh, very often the answer to where they where they really should apply, where they where they they really feel at home, both academically and culturally, is 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 often uh, is often fairly obvious. And uh, the one thing I would uh, the one thing I would emphasise and appeal to students to do is um, don't take this word or this expression we're we're guilty of using today admission too literally. Because admission suggests it's their decision about you that's most important. For me, it's your decision about them that's most important for a student. And that's the approach they should take. And with USA, when we're talking about those 7,000 undergraduate places available, people have to recognise the depth of quality that exists in the USA and that it isn't limited, you know, to that that top 10 in the, U the US news. Yeah, I would add to that, you know, they, if, if you are looking at the US, there are so many institutions uh, across the country. But at the same time, I do understand that a lot of international students are thinking, you know, well, what degree will be recognized if I go back to my country? 
you know, if I go someplace that, you know, maybe people haven't heard of, and that's obviously a legitimate uh, concern. So, you know, that should be part of your calculus. Um, I think, you know, possibly also part of your decision is where you think you want to live post-graduation, um, you know, because there are restrictions. I mean, uh, I know that, for example, um, you know, a lot of medical programs in the U.S. Uh, don't take as many international students as undergraduate programs do, you know, and so you might come to the U.S., you know, say you're pre-med and then find out you can't get into medical school and stay here anyway. And now what? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those are things that you really do need to think hard about. Um, when you're making a choice like this, um, because it's it, it is four years or three years, uh, you know, as the case may be of your life. But then it's also what's supposed to be setting you up for the next stages. I think that often high school students think of their university experience as the end, uh, you know, that they're driving towards. But you're really driving towards what's going to be a foundation for what comes next. So although, you know, it's not terribly reasonable to expect 17 year olds to know what they plan to do for the rest of their lives. Do give that some thought, uh, you know, you know, what am I setting myself up for? Um, it's not just about having the experience that you see on television shows um, or, you know, spending time in buildings that remind you of Hogwarts. Um, it's really about setting yourself up uh, for your career. And I would just say that, um, you know, a lot of what we've discussed today is about kind of figuring out what is a good fit for you, um, whether, you know, when we're talking more broadly about two countries and um, different university systems, at the same time, it still matters, you know, whether you're looking at a UK school or a US school, um, be thoughtful in choosing the schools that you eventually want to put on your list. And that matters too. Um, All of us have read applications and the ones um, where the students are very genuine about where they want to attend. And they have the reasons, right reasons. They have the details. They have the specifics. Um, It comes across to the reader um, that, you know, the student has really thoroughly researched the school and understands the reason why they want to attend um, versus that I am just going to apply to, you know, five UCAS, the University of California system, plus maxing out the common app. Uh, that will get you, you know, um, 30 some applications and it's not going to be um, that well done. So yes, I understand that in the U S in particular, it's very competitive, but that thoughtfulness and finding the right fit and being able to articulate why you want to attend a school, what do they have to offer that would fit with your um, particular interest and criteria would be um, quite important, I think. And I just do think, though, Christine, when, when students are thinking about sort of strategizing, you know, how many applications, I know we've, we've talked about that a bit in this session here, um, you know, look, it's, it's a question of whether you have time to go deep or wide, um, you know, like, I think there's something to be said for investing in something. No, you don't want to put all of your eggs into one basket, but, you know, two or three, <laughs> as opposed to 25, and you just have one egg in each. Um, you know, it, you, it, it is clear when you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about an institution and why you want to be there. Um, and in, in this weird way, I think that the, the American application process is a little bit like, you know, dating. Um, you know, if, if you sort of go out with somebody and are not listening to anything they're telling you, they're not going to ask you for a second date. And so when you write an essay to a university and say, this is why I want to attend, and they read it and say, do you even know what we offer or who we are? Because it's clear to me, you haven't looked through those things. They're going to deny you admission. And to their minds, they're almost doing you a favor because it's not clear that this is where you should be because you're not clear on what you want to do or why you want to be there. Um, so, you know, I just think students really owe it to themselves to think about this process in some ways as a process of self-discovery 
um, you know, learning what you want and why you want it, and then applying to the institutions that are going to give you that. All right. So I just want to thank everybody, uh, you know, for a really great conversation and great advice and insight, specifically, you know, Christine, Mark and Jenny. Um, you've really, I think, given some depth and some some flavor, you know, to a process that for students can feel very opaque and kind of uh, impersonal. So thanks, everybody, also for tuning in. Check out our Just Admitted podcast page to catch up on all of our previous episodes and be sure to bookmark the IBUI's Knowledge Base and College Admissions blog and follow us on Facebook. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok for all the latest higher ed news and advice. Stay tuned for our next episode in which we will discuss the business of colleges. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.